Welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Today we are going to talk about a couple of fundamental questions, including what is divine grace? You know, we so often hear the message uh, that God gives us grace and that we must remain in a state of grace. But what exactly is grace? How do you obtain it? And uh, more importantly, how do you retain it? Now we're going to look at that. We're also going to look at and talk about the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus, the God-man. The true identity of Jesus Christ is um, every bit as important today as it ever has been, and people are every bit as confused about it today as they ever have been. And uh, we're going to have the no-nonsense answer to our Lord's question, who do you say that I am? But to begin the program, I want to talk about something that, uh, uh, something you probably never heard of before, and that is the virtue of eutrapelia, E-U-T-R-A-P-E-L-I-A, eutrapelia. Okay, was I right? Have you, have you never heard of that before? Uh, it's, it's a little obscure, um, but it's actually uh, in, quite important. The Declaration of Independence lists amongst our inalienable rights, uh, those which, uh, with which men have been endowed by their Creator, the pursuit of happiness. And unfortunately, this pursuit of happiness uh, in our current culture has uh, largely been replaced by the relentless pursuit of pleasure. Uh, Neil Postman uh, some years ago went so far as to say that uh, as a nation we are amusing ourselves to death. You know, pleasure is about gratification, about um, satisfaction, excitement, whereas happiness is about fulfillment and meaning. It's about uh, living a life of meaningful activity guided by the intellect and the will, and that's what's at the heart of, of human happiness. Whereas, you know, seeking pleasure, avoiding pain, uh, that, that, that's perfectly natural, but it's not uh, distinctively human characteristic. You know, uh, desiring satisfaction and excitement is common to all animals uh, because, you know, experiencing pleasure or pain doesn't require the use of intellect or will, those spiritual faculties. You know, because pleasure is something that we receive from, uh, you know, from some object or from some action, whereas happiness at root is something that we do as rational creatures. Uh, the meaningful activities of thinking and choosing and creating. You know, <laughs> merely asking the question, what is happiness, kind of proves the point. And I have often remarked on this program that we are admonished by the Holy Scripture to be not afraid, to, to fear not, to have no fear. Words to that effect, some 365 times. Now that's once for every day of the year, so clearly uh, it represents a theme. However, Scripture also commands us to rejoice, and we are commanded to rejoice some 800 times. So joy, happiness, is clearly an important matter in Scripture as well. Now, pleasure is not always a bad thing, clearly. I mean, pleasure is, in fact, a, uh, most certainly an ingredient in joy and, and happiness. But obviously not all pleasures promote happiness. Uh, drug abuse... Um, pornography, uh, uh, ranting on the internet, okay? All those things give pleasure, but they clearly do not lead to happiness, you know? But some people seem to think that, that pleasure of any kind 
is incompatible with holiness, that, that Christian people are, are dour and gloomy by, uh, by necessity. And that's not true. You know, I mean, um, as an illustration, there's a, a traditional story, a legend about uh, St. John the Apostle that, uh, you know, once upon a time, so as the story goes, some people were, um, uh, ran across St. John the Evangelist playing games and, and telling jokes with his friends. And they were scandalized by this. They thought this is not the kind of behavior that they expected from someone who was so close to our Lord. And so uh, St. John undertook to set them straight. You know, one of his friends was, was shooting arrows. And St. John explained that people are like an archery bow. He says if you just keep shooting arrows nonstop, if you don't uh, you know, relax the bow from time to time, it will eventually snap. And so St. Thomas Aquinas tells us it is requisite for the relaxation of the mind that we make use from time to time of playful deeds and jokes. And the point's clear. I mean, human beings need time to rest and to relax and time for enjoyment and games and, and the witty conversation of friends. Time for recreation, okay? And if you look at that word, you break it down, it's re-creation. It's about restoring and, and recharging your spiritual batteries, so to speak. So, and if we're going to be useful to our family and to our friends and to God, and if we're going to respect the, the limitations of our energies, then we need to become skilled in knowing when to stop. Turn aside, you know, relax. And you might say this is only common sense, and I would agree. But as Terry Barber always says, common sense ain't always so common. You know, because how often do you hear about people burning out? Burnout, it's, it's, you know, we have a term for it. People exhausting themselves to the point of, uh, uh, you know, physical and, and mental exhaustion or complete breakdown. Stress, we know, is a leading cause of all sorts of maladies. Stress has been linked to, uh, to uh, you know, high blood pressure and depression and abnormal heartbeat, you know, a heart attack even, and ulcers and, and, you know, other digestive problems, irritable bowel syndrome, that sort of thing, constipation, upset stomach, weight gain, um, problems with fertility, asthma, arthritis, skin conditions. All of these things are linked to stress. And burnout can happen in any walk of life, but it's really very common in, amongst people that are involved in, in helping professions or helping ministries. So, so you know, social workers and, and nurses and pastors and uh, teachers, cops, you know, firemen, uh, uh, certainly uh, parents, um, people that care for others, you know, caregivers of all kinds, you know, but the thing is that burnout isn't necessarily a sign of, of your dedication and your selfishness or selfish, <laughs> not selfishness, selflessness, but it might just be a sign that, uh, you know, you, it shows a lack of wisdom or, or a failure to respect um, your, your own limitations or your own needs um, ignoring the, the messages of, of your body. And, you know, I suspect that you, as well as I, have been guilty of any number of these things at any number of times. You know, it's easy to, to not see the forest for the trees and, and, and get all pent up. 
And that's why Aristotle, going all the way back to the ancient Greeks, he believed that uh, you know, re- proper relaxation was necessary. And for that, for relaxation and enjoyment, what you needed was not just a social skill, but actually a special virtue related to the uh, cardinal virtue of temperance. And he called this virtue eutropelia. And he says, with this virtue, that a person's not only going to know that they must relax, but when and how. And because it's a virtue, it's concerned with what's morally good. And so eutropelia is not going to allow you to uh, enjoy yourselves at the expense of others. So, you know, or in a way that's sinful. So, for example, with, you know, abusing drugs or or taking pleasure in in things that are destructive or obscene, for example. Now, virtue, of course, is always a mean. You know, it's the middle way between, between extremes. Uh, the virtue of courage, for example. If courage is in the center, then you can sin by defect, right? A lack of courage would be cowardice. That's one extreme. And then on the other extreme, you have an excess, right? You have rashness, a, a guy that's going to take unnecessary chances or, you know, run into a hail of bullets for no good reason. And, but courage is in the center. And and eutropelia, like the same thing, it it's, sits in the center between two extremes, so on, on the one extreme, by the sin of defect, you would have boorishness. You know, the, the person who, who can't take a joke. Uh, although often people who can't take a joke can dish it out. Right? They can dish it out, but they can't take it. You've seen an awful lot of that these days. And then you can sin by excess, which is just stupidly carrying on, um, you know, buffoonery. But in the center, you have eutropelia, striking the right note, helping us to relax in a way that's mentally and physically and morally healthy. You know, Aquinas, again, he takes up Aristotle and, and, and what he says about this in his account of um, living the good human life in the Summa Theologia. He calls eutropalia the virtue of pleasantness or playfulness. He says, uh, like the body, the soul needs time to rest and in a kind of pleasure that we call play. He says, now such like words or deeds wherein nothing further is sought than the soul's delight are called playful or humorous. Of course, these words or deeds are only virtuous if they accord with right reason. So playfulness has its proper time, place, and mode. But insofar as we play reasonably, we can speak of a virtue of playfulness and therefore a virtue related to games and recreational activities. And it's through those activities that we restore the strength of our souls, according to Aquinas, so that we will have the, you know, we'll be able to be more fervent in the pursuit of higher ends, such as contemplation, right? Um, Aquinas said that man cannot live without joy, and therefore, when he is deprived of true spiritual joys, it is necessary that he become addicted to carnal pleasures. Or, as, you know, St. Bernard would call those false joys, you know, which do not lead to happiness but to ruin. He said, there's no greater misery than false joys. Hence the importance of eutropalia, that virtue that enables us to give ourselves wholeheartedly to the serious business of enjoying the delights of friendship and love. As Tolkien said, if more of us valued food and cheer and song, it would be a merrier world. And that's no nonsense. All right, back with more right after this. No-Nonsense Catholic on Virgin Most Powerful.
Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. Great to have you along with us uh, today talking about grace and really asking the question, what is grace? Because we talk about it. We talk about staying in a state of grace and, and how we need God's grace, how we can't do anything apart from God's grace. But what exactly is it? What is grace? Well, you know, the classic answer is that grace is a supernatural help or gift which God bestows on us for the good of the soul. And, you know, human beings, we have many natural gifts, both uh, inward and outward, of of body and soul. So we have the kind of natural outward gifts of um, health, um, food, clothing, housing, these sort of things that are external to us. And then we have our, our natural inward gifts of intellect and will and memory. We have the five senses, We have the five inner senses, right, that include the things I just mentioned. But grace is not a natural gift. It's not part of our given nature. It is something added. You know, our first parents lost the state of grace, and so they do not pass it on to us. It's not part of our natural gifts. It's over above what constitutes human nature and our fallen human nature and surpasses it. Uh, in both power and goodness. And for that reason, it is called supernatural. That means that grace can only come from God, who is above nature. You know, we can't acquire it for ourselves. We can't acquire it by our own efforts. We cannot earn it. Grace is a gift. And it's just like a tree that, you know, produces wild fruit. If you... um, give it the right kind of care and grafting and so on, you can make it uh, produce a a superior fruit. And in the same way, we cannot by ourselves produce good fruit, you know, that's meritorious unto salvation. But with God's grace, we can. Now, there are two principal kinds of grace. There's actual grace and sanctifying grace. Actual grace is also known as helping grace. And it's given to us so that we can perform Uh, a supernatural act or acts. So actual from act, right? It helps us to act. It's also called transient grace because uh, it works on the soul in a passing manner. it's, It's temporary. Whereas sanctifying grace remains in the soul and adorns it and, and prepares the soul to be constantly pleasing to God, right? It is the indwelling of the spirit of God. Hence, we call it this, the state of grace, Now, actual grace inclines us to do good deeds and helps us to perform them. Uh, This this helping grace enlightens our mind. It moves and strengthens the will. As St. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, 5, not that we are sufficient to think anything of ourselves as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. And he says in Philippians 2, for it is God who worketh in you both to will and to accomplish according to his good will. So it's important to note that God gives everyone, and that means everyone, without exception, the sufficient grace to be saved. St. Paul again in 1 Timothy, God will have all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. But not everyone receives the same measure of grace. Not everyone who who receives the grace cooperates with it. But those who do cooperate with God's grace are going to receive more than those who neglect it, 
who don't have any interest in, in prayer or good works or, you know, seldom if ever go to church. You know, it's not unlike our natural gifts. You know, if we don't exercise them, they atrophy. Like the old saying goes, if you don't use it, you lose it. Um, as the psalmist says, uh, today, if you shall hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Or as St. Paul says in Second Corinthians 6, uh, and we helping do exhort you that you receive not the grace of God in vain. Right? You must cooperate with the grace. Both the criminals, for example, who were crucified on either side of Jesus, received the grace of repentance. And one, St. Dismas, responded to it and was saved. The other, St. Gesmas, as far as we know, did not. And without grace, we can do nothing to please God. All the way back in the 4th century, uh, or the 5th century, right, uh, there was a monk named Pelagius who denied the necessity of grace. Um, And he said it was possible to keep God's commandments without his help. Now, St. Augustine refuted this teaching, this heresy. I mean, it became known as the heresy of Pelagianism. And it was condemned by several particular councils. They're called local church councils. And then finally by the Ecumenical Council of Ephesus in 431. And now fast forward all the way to Vatican II in the pastoral constitution on the church, Gaudium et Spes. We read, and I quote, Since human freedom has been damaged by sin... Only by the aid of God's grace can human beings bring their relationship with God into full flower. Now, what precisely is this full flower of our relationship with God? What do we become through sanctifying grace? And the answer is that we become holy and right with God. We become his children. We become the heirs of heaven. Sanctifying grace is first uh, received in the sacrament of baptism. And, and, you know, and even before baptism, it's actual grace that moves us to desire baptism. And then we receive that initial grace, uh, um, uh, sanctifying grace in the sacrament of baptism, which, of course, washes us clean of the original sin and the punishment due for uh, the original sin and our personal sins, and it sanctifies the soul. So the baptized go from the state of sin to the state of grace. And since the baptized is made just, okay, holy, that is to say, before God, the sanctifying grace of baptism is called the grace of justification. You know, justification is not a word that we hear all that much in in the Catholic Church, except in apologetics, because, you know, the the whole idea of justification is something that uh, our separated brethren are really hung up on. Uh, Sanctifying grace, this is the garment without which no one is admitted to the heavenly marriage feast of the Lamb. This is the the meaning of our Lord's words about the wedding garment in the parable of the wedding feast, when the man without the wedding garment is is consigned to the outer darkness. So sanctifying grace is the, the divine, the supernatural life in the souls of the just. And we become uh, partakers in, in God's life in holy baptism. And this, which is, you know, the sacrament of our rebirth. You must be born again of water and spirit. And because we are born again of God, we may call him Father. And because we received in baptism the divine life through the church, we may call the church our mother. St. Augustine said, no one can have God for his father who will not have the church 
or his mother. And Christ, the only begotten Son of God, is our brother. And so, as God's children through divine adoption, we are promised the divine inheritance, and we are co-heirs then with Christ to the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Sadly, it is possible to lose sanctifying grace through mortal sin. In fact, that's why it's called mortal sin, because like a, a mortal wound kills the life of the body, mortal sin kills the divine life in the soul. So, you know, some non-Catholics believe that it's impossible to lose your salvation, and they hold to the, uh, the doctrine, once saved, always saved, right? But, but this is a heresy, and it's always been rejected by the church. And in 1547, after, you know, Luther's uh, revolt in 1520, Council of Trent took the occasion to declare not only the sin of unbelief, but every mortal sin results in the loss of sanctifying grace. And the Council cited St. Paul uh, and the catalog of sins that, that he rattles off in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. Know you not that the unjust shall not possess the kingdom of God? Do not err. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor the effeminate, nor liars with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor railers, nor extortioners shall possess the kingdom of God. Seems pretty clear. Thankfully, sanctifying grace uh, can be restored in the soul through sacramental absolution. And even through perfect contrition, um, you know, provided it's uh, accompanied by the resolve to go to confession at the earliest opportunity. Obviously, then, the state of grace is a serious matter. But what, we must, uh, what must we do to preserve that state or even increase the sanctifying grace in our souls? You know, again, um, some of the same non-Catholics who hold to once saved, always saved, also believe that salvation comes through faith alone. However, and that's another topic for another time, but uh, allow me to say that Scripture and tradition and the perennial magisterium of the Church all agree that we must be devoted to good works in our daily life. And these are not, um, you know, good works, when we talk about that, are not the works uh, criticized by St. Paul in his uh, epistles to the Romans and the Galatians. Those works, quote-unquote, refer to the outward, uh, the ceremonial works of the Mosaic law, through which the, the Jewish people sought justification. And Paul specifically mentions circumcision as an example. But the good works of the Christian are works of a living faith, and St. James says in chapter 2 of his epistle, verses 14 and following, What shall it profit, my brethren, if a man say he hath faith, but hath not works? Shall faith be able to save him? He says, Faith, if it have not works, is dead in itself. Do you not see that by works a man is justified, and not by faith alone? For even as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. And St. Paul, even in Galatians, which our separated brethren cite as, uh, this, uh, as faith alone, it says in Galatians 5-6 that Christ requires faith working through love. So the good works to which we should apply ourselves would be works of piety and penance, love of neighbor, so that the corporal and spiritual works of mercy, conscientious work in our own occupation, you know, to be a good worker, um, perhaps especially suffering, to bear suffering um, for the love of God. Sacred Scripture, of course, lays uh, special emphasis on three things, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. 
And we go to the, the book of Tobit, chapter 12, verse 8, where it says, Prayer is good with fasting and alms more than to lay up treasures of gold. Especially important is the frequent reception of the sacraments, sacraments of Holy Communion and the sacrament of penance. You know, the Holy Eucharist is the food that nourishes the divine life in our soul. And confession, absolution, this is the way that we can um, assure that we receive our Lord's body and blood worthily and the grace associated with it. So a Catholic that's not zealous for good works becomes lukewarm and easily falls into grave sins. And without good works, like it or not, it is impossible to be saved. Jesus said himself, Every tree, therefore, that yieldeth not good fruit shall be cut down and cast into the fire. Point is this. Works done in a state of grace are meritorious because they share in the infinite merits of Jesus Christ. As he said, Abide in me, and I abide in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abide in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. And that's no nonsense. Be right back after this. Stay with us. back to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold. Our Lord said to his apostles, who do men say the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others uh, Elias, one of the prophets. And um, the Son of Man is a term, a prophetic term uh, for the Messiah that Jesus often used in his public ministry referring to himself. And so when he gets this answer, he narrows the question and just asks point blank, but who do you say that I am? And St. Peter replied, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And what did that mean when he called him the Christ? You know, throughout the centuries, God sent prophets to predict these various events and facts concerning the, uh, the coming Savior, this promised Redeemer that God promised way back uh, in the book of Genesis right after the fall. And among the most important prophets were Jeremiah and Isaiah, the prophet Daniel, Ezekiel. Daniel actually uh, predicted the exact time of the birth of the Redeemer and said that his kingdom would have no end and would embrace all kingdoms. And Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah would be born of a virgin and that he would be both God and man and would die patiently and willingly like a, a lamb uh, to the slaughter for our sins. Pretty uh, specific stuff. And this is the thing. Bishop Sheen used to say that of all the religious leaders, only Jesus Christ was pre-announced. He said nobody was waiting for the booth or the birth of the Buddha. You know, nobody was, was, was waiting patiently for the coming of Muhammad. But people everywhere, not only the Jews, but the Gentiles as well, the, uh, the wise men from the East, for example, who came, followed the, the star, the astrologers who came to, to ask, where, where is the newborn king of the Jews? They were waiting for Jesus Christ to come. And who is Jesus? I mean, we look at the teaching of the church, and the chief teaching of the church about Jesus Christ is that he is God made man. 
Christ himself said that he was God, and, and the Jews understood that claim literally. It's very clear. He was condemned to death for blasphemy, for making himself equal to God, by, by claiming to be the Son of God. When, when, when Caiaphas said, I adjure you by the living God, are you the Messiah, the Son of God? And he said, I am. And that, for the Jews, was, was a blasphemy. I am, especially, because that's the very name of God revealed to Moses. I am who am. Christ said, all power in heaven and earth has been given to me. You know, and, and the high priest asks you, are, are you? The, and he says, I am. And in John 10, 30, he makes it very explicit. I and the Father are one. So Christ claimed very clearly and was understood very clearly to have claimed to be God. But he also proved those claims. He proved them by his wonderful miracles and his prophecies and his omniscience, you know, his, his knowledge of, of everything, what people were thinking and what they were feeling in their hearts, and certainly by the holiness of his life. And the miracles that Christ worked were unique in that he worked them in his own name, not like the prophets of the Old Testament or, or his own followers who did uh, miracles in the name of God. But, you know, when the leper came to him and said, Lord, if you will, I can be made clean. And Jesus said, I will be thou made clean. And then he appealed to those miracles as a testimony of the truth of his doctrines and his divinity. He says in John 10, 38, if you are not willing to believe me, believe the works. I'm doing things that only God can do. So, so believe that and then believe my teaching. And of course, he predicted his own passion and death and, and resurrection the treason of Judas, the, the perpetuity of his church. You know, he said, uh, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You know, upon this rock I'll build my church, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And of course, I can't speak to the future because I'm not God. But I can say that, uh, you know, it's been 2,000 years, and everybody else that was around 2,000 years ago, you know, there's all the, all the empires and everything that, you know, they've all kind of come and gone, and yet the church continues. And, and then, of course, we have the, um, the witness of the apostles, the followers of Christ himself, plainly taught that Christ is God. And they died in testimony for their faith. They died for their witness. That's why uh, um, the, the Greek word martyr literally means witness. You know, and so we like the ultimate witness is to give your life. St. Paul says in, in, in Christ dwells all the fullness of God. St. John, in the first chapter of his gospel, amazing theological treatise on the divinity of Christ, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. St. Thomas Didymus, we talked to you with this the gospel just a couple weeks ago, confessed the divinity of Christ, knelt before him, my Lord and my God. And of course, St. Peter, thou art Christ, son of the living God. So we have that apostolic witness. And then the church teaches us that Jesus Christ is God. And that teaching has spread throughout uh, all the nations. And in spite of untold obstacles and persecution, you know, the church grew kind of miraculously, but by the simplest of means. I don't know how you're listening to this right now, or if you're listening live, or if you're listening after the fact. But, you know, uh, 
we just this very week finally got deplatformed from YouTube for talking about things like this. They don't want that platform. They don't want people talking about it. But you know what? The gospel spread without the internet. <laughs> it will continue long after whatever comes next replaces the internet and long after the whole thing comes crashing down. The gospel spreads simply. Missionaries going to people that have never heard of Christ and telling them the good news. And everywhere that good news was accompanied by miracles which God designs to show forth the truth of the church and the doctrine of the divinity of Christ. This is the foundation of the Christian religion. Even the enemies of the Catholic Church have admitted their belief in the divinity of Christ. Napoleon Bonaparte, the, the, the little emperor, he was dedicated to the eradication of, of the church or the church's power. He kidnapped not one but two popes. And I recall, I'm sorry, I don't remember the, the name of the bishop that he had, but he told him, I am going to destroy the church. And the bishop laughed at him. He said, you know, if the, if, if the bishops and popes of the church haven't been able to destroy it in, in 1,800 years and more, you don't have a chance. And as Napoleon lay dying, he said, I know men. But Jesus Christ was more than man. He says, my men deserted me in the field when I was there leading them. But Christ's army has been faithful for centuries. He said, a leader who has an army which functions even though he's dead is not a man. So why is Jesus Christ God? Well, he's God because he's the only son of God. He has the same divine nature as his father. We're going to talk about that later. Um, and they all said, this is from Luke 22, they all said, art thou then the son of God? And he answered, you yourselves say that I am. This was at his trial. They say, what further need have we of witnesses? We have heard ourselves from his own mouth. You know, after the fall, man was unable to regain his former holiness. We fell from the state of grace into the state of sin. Uh, human beings became like a, like a sick man who couldn't arise from his bed. We needed someone to raise us up. And since the sin we committed was an offense against the infinite God, then the atonement had to be made by an infinite person, which is the Son of God himself. As we so often say, Jesus Christ paid a debt he did not owe because we owed a debt we could not pay. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son. The voice of God was heard at Jesus' baptism. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Christ is also called the Word. Right? That's what St. John calls him in, in his gospel, the first chapter of his gospel. Just, just as a thought in our mind finds expression in a word, so the Son of God dwelling in the bosom of the Father was shown to the world when the Word became man. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. So that's Jesus is God. But Jesus is also man. He's man because he's the son of the Blessed Virgin Mary, and he has a body and a soul like ours. And the birth of Jesus Christ is a fact of history, and that he was born of Mary, who was espoused to a carpenter named Joseph, 
who lived in Nazareth of Galilee. And the archangel Gabriel came to Mary and said, The Holy One to be born shall be called the Son of God. And so he's true man because he has a, a body and a soul like ours, which he derived, um, you know, he derived a human nature from a human mother. History tells us that uh, Jesus Christ, who preached in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, that uh, we have many records of his appearance, of his words, his actions, his teaching. You know, nobody doubts that Jesus Christ was a man. Well, like nobody with their, in their right mind doubts that Jesus Christ was a man. For he could be seen and touched and heard like other men. And he lived and died as men of all times have, you know, lived and died. So how do we show, how do we demonstrate that the religion of God that was revealed through Christ is worthy of belief? Well, number one, because Jesus Christ, announcing himself as the true Son of God, whose coming was foretold by the prophets, preached doctrines that he said all must believe. See, if Christ is God, then the religion he established is true. And the church that he founded, that one church, is the true church. And we can believe everything he says, even without understanding it, because if he's God, God cannot err. And if he weren't God... Christianity be a farce. The sooner done away with the better, which a lot of people are saying today. You know, if he was just an imposter claiming divinity, he led billions of people into error. But we know better, and we'll talk about why when we come back. So great to have you with us today. You're listening to No Nonsense Catholic on Virgin Most Powerful Radio, and we will be right back after these messages. So stay with us. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. We've been talking about who do you say I am? The answer to the question of our Lord Jesus, who is Jesus Christ? And we've been talking about Jesus Christ and the church's teaching that he is the God-man, that he is both fully God and fully man. And we talked about how he announced himself as being the true Son of God, whose coming was foretold by the prophets, and he preached doctrines that he said everyone must believe. And so if that's true, if he's God, the, religious, the religion he established is the true religion. The church he established is the true church because God cannot deceive nor be deceived. But of course, if he's not God, then Christianity is a farce. And the sooner we do away with it, the better. You know, if, if he wasn't God, if he's an imposter, claiming divinity, he's led billions of people into error over, over the last 20 centuries. But our Lord worked miracles to show that the God of truth approved his teachings. He worked so many public miracles that people flocked to him from all over to be, to be cured, to be healed. And he says uh, in the... Uh, Matthew's Gospel, when John, being John the Baptist, had heard in prison of the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples to say to him, Art thou he who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answering said to them, Go and report to John what you have heard and seen. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead rise. 
and the poor have the gospel preached to them. He had all the earmarks of the one who was to come. He performed miracles on inanimate objects, like uh, when he changed water into wine or multiplied the loaves. He, he healed in, in an instant those who were sick, even those who were paralyzed, deaf, blind. He, he expelled demons. Uh, a piece, you know, the one man had been possessed, was possessed by a legion of demons. And for as long as anybody could remember, and no one can help, and, and, and nothing could restrain him. And Christ came and said, be gone, and out they went. He raised the dead to life. The daughter of Jairus, the, the widow's son of name, his own friend, Lazarus. And even his enemies acknowledged the miracles. They had to resort to saying, well, he's not doing miracles by the power of God, but by, by the power of, of the devil, which, of course, he said is nonsense. And, uh, you know, the Pharisees even planned to kill Lazarus because so many of the Jews believed in Jesus because of uh, raising him from the dead. And, of course, he worked miracles on his own person, the transfiguration, the resurrection, the ascension. There's more to say, and we'll pick up this theme again next week because there's a a couple things else I wanted to talk about. But we're going to talk about next week the person of our Lord Jesus Christ and his nature and his will and the distinction between person and nature. And it's important, and we're going to talk about it. But... um, before we go, last week, last Sunday, I should say the beginning of this week, uh, was the fourth Sunday after Easter in the traditional calendar. And um, the gospel was from St. John, and it's Jesus telling the apostles that he's going to go back to the Father. He's talking about his ascension, and he's telling them about the uh, coming of the Holy Spirit uh, at Pentecost, which will be happening in, in a week or two. So, I'm looking at a sermon uh, that was preached on the fourth Sunday after Easter by Father Wilfred J. Diamond back in the day. He's preaching on the verse, I go to him that sent me. This is our Lord Jesus telling the apostles, uh, the time is coming that I go to him that sent me. And, you know, there will come a time when you and I (laughs) will go to him. You know, and, and when it comes our time to say, I go to him to send me, uh, what's going to be in store for us? And so he, uh, Father Diamond, told a couple of stories about, uh, you know, just to show what, that what we do in our lives decides what our reward will be in heaven. And the first was a story of a rich lady who had a dream of going to heaven, and she was being shown around heaven by an angel, and she saw that they were constructing this huge mansion, and she asked the angel, whose will this be? And he replied, that's actually for your gardener. And the woman was surprised because on earth, her gardener lived in a little cottage. I mean, it was barely big enough for him and his wife and children. And the angel said, well, you know, he might live a better, in a better house on earth if he was less generous. And then they walked on a bit and she saw a tiny little cottage being built. And she said, and whose will that be? And the angel said, oh, well, this is for you. But the lady cried, I live in a great mansion. How can I get used to living in this little cottage? And the angel said, well, we do the best that we can up here, but we can only use the materials that are sent to us from on earth. And the woman woke up and she learned the lesson 
that her, you know, it was taught in her dream and she started to do good works in order to lay up treasures in heaven. Now, the other story is about a palace of good works and it's a story about Alexander the Great who had conquered the whole known world of his day. And you know, Alexander was one of the nine worthies. This is a a traditional medieval uh, uh, collection of champions who personify the ideals of chivalry as it was established in the Middle Ages and whose lives are deemed a valuable study for those who are aspiring to chivalry. And they include uh, three pagans, three Jews, and three Christians. So the nine worthies, the, the pagans are Hector of Troy, Alexander the Great, and Julius Caesar. And then the Jews are Joshua, David, and Judas Maccabeus. And then the three Christians are King Arthur, Charlemagne, who was the first Holy Roman Emperor, and Godfrey of Bouillon, who was the leader of the First Crusade when they recaptured Jerusalem and remained in the Holy Land as defender of the Holy Sepulchre. They, they wanted to make him king of Jerusalem, but he said, I will not wear a crown of gold in the city where my Savior wore a crown of thorns. And these men are worthy of admiration. And this is a note for those of you who are out there wanting to tear down statues. Admiration isn't worship. We do not hold up men as heroes because they're perfect, but because they have certain qualities that are worthy of admiration. I think it was uh, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien who said, um, you know, it doesn't matter if Beethoven kicked his dog, he would still be a, a great composer. And so it is. There, you know, we admire qualities. We don't admire necessarily everything. And so we can look, even though Alexander was a pagan, even though he was, you know, a, a conqueror, we can look to him to his good qualities. And there's a story about him about uh, wanting to build a great palace. And he had found just the spot, but there was a, a village there. It was already inhabited. And so he told his friend Stephen, you know, there's a village of people living in just the spot, so I want you to drive them away and destroy their village and, and build my palace. And he gave him money and jewels and gold and so forth to, to accomplish this. But Stephen was a kind man and a generous one. And instead of driving the people away and destroying their village, he used the jewels and the money to feed them and to help them. And the starving came to him from all around and he fed them and the sick were brought to Stephen and he cared for them. And now um, after some time, Alexander came to see how the palace was coming along. And of course, (laughs) he found out that uh, they weren't building it at all and that Stephen was using his money to help the people there that he had commanded to be driven away. And he was very angry. And Stephen was, was, uh, you know, taken into custody But that night, Alexander had a dream. And in the dream, he saw a palace that was far more wonderful even than the one that he had planned. The walls were made of gold encrusted with jewels and the floors were of silver. And the uh, voice spoke to him in the dream and said, Alexander, this is the palace of good works that Stephen has built for you. And so when he woke up, he released Stephen from custody. And because in that dream, he had learned the lesson that we should learn. That when our time comes to say, I go to him that sent me, that we will know that we have sent plenty of material from earth and that there's a palace of good works waiting for us in heaven. 
So that's, you know, to, relates to what we were talking about earlier in regard to uh, grace. One more thing, too, um, that I wanted to, to bring up before we're done. We have been booted off of YouTube, and that means that our upcoming virtual conference that we were going to do with Terry Barber um, and his uh, uh, evangelization program, he's going to show the, the videos of his evangelization seminar, how to share your faith with anybody. Great information. It's an important thing. Obviously, we're not doing it on YouTube. And so the plan at this point in time is that we will be live streaming on Facebook, I believe. That is the way we are going to go. And then, of course, <clears throat> after the fact, we'll, we'll make the, um, the recordings available to those who have registered, I guess, uh, or possibly to you know, our donors or, or whatever when things, um, you know, when it all comes out, uh, that those, those recordings will at some point be made available uh, via recording. You know, we'll put them on our website or on Rumble or or um, make them available to our donors, however they decide to do it. But the point being, though, that the live presentation is going to happen on Facebook. Hey, Richie, is that or is that this weekend? Sorry, he's looking it up as we speak. Sorry? <laughs> No, not the Splendor of the Church. This is the evangelization one. This is terrible that I'm, I'm a host on my own show and I'm not even, <laughs> don't even have the date. It's in May. I think it's coming up this, uh, I believe it's this coming weekend that we're going to have um, this. But you can, easy thing to do. Now, here's, here's what I can do. I can send you to our website, which was the other thing that I wanted to talk about. You go to vmpr.org and you can find out all it's right there on the homepage a nice picture, and you can uh, find out all the details about that. Also, we're making uh, arrangements to to be sure that uh, people will be able to access our men's conference. If you want to, um, if you're in Southern California and you're able to attend live, we'd love to see. It's going to be here at the Sacred Heart Chapel in Covina, and you can. And that's next month. But again, you can find out all the information, and you can register right online on our website vmpr.org and if you've been looking for us on YouTube and you can't find us because we're gone uh, we're on Rumble or again we're archiving the shows individually on each one has its own page right on the um, right on the website and by the way um, Terry it's not this week it's the 15th of May May 15th the virtual conference Terry Barber how to share your faith with anyone live streamed on Facebook God willing and the creek don't rise all right. Uh, so great to be with you. Going to be talking more about the person of Jesus Christ and other stuff next week. Same time, same station. Until then, thanks for listening and may God richly bless you and your family from everyone here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio.